Welcome to Noble Warrior. This is a place where entrepreneurs talk about what it takes to build purpose-driven life and purpose-driven business. We're going to talk about mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, such that you can go on and build your purpose-driven life and business. My name is CK, biomedical engineering, PhD, UCLA, that turned startup executive, that turned executive coach, specifically focusing on mindset, purpose, and culture. My next guest is an award-winning social entrepreneur. He's a best-selling author. He's a regular contributor for Forbes, Fortune, Inc. Magazine, Entrepreneur Magazine, Time, Business Insider, and Harvard Business Review. Collectively, his writings have been read tens of millions of times. He's also the founder of the Mental Model Club. Please welcome Michael Simmons. Thank you very much, CK. Great to be here. I'm really excited to have you here, my friend. There's so many things I, I want to ask you, but I want to open up with this question. First of all, you are a professional thought leader, right? So number one, how would you define thought leadership? Let's start there and then can go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, that's a really good question. I actually have I've never been asked that before. And one thing I feel like we're moving towards is a world where thoughts, it becomes apparent that thoughts become, control more and more of our reality. When you think about our world and that we can just press a button and suddenly there's a cab five minutes away at the amount of, we could have the idea and then that reality happens. I think we're going to a world where that things like that become more and more possible. And then even to the world where we have brain implants and things like that, we just literally have the thought and then something happens in the physical world. And so in a way, I think just that sense, if you can have thoughts that are rare and valuable, you can really shape the, the world in a lot of different ways. Got it. So for you, thought leadership means rare and valuable ideas and or idea packager, right? Things that that people can understand and grab onto. Is that accurate? Exactly. And so you could put it in a speech, you can put it in an article, you can put it in a video, but that underlying part comes in finding that rare and valuable idea that naming it, that creates a thought space for others to now think in. Let me ask you this. We can go on to the mechanics of how to become one and so on and so forth. I know that you've been doing this for quite a few years. I think you first started back in 2015 when I first met you, roughly that time frame. So I had a few different careers. I had one career when I started in college writing. I wrote for uh, Entrepreneur at that time. I wrote a few articles and had a blog and wrote a book. And it didn't go as well. And then I started writing again in 2013. Okay, got it. Okay, so before we go into the journey part, now that you are doing this full-time, you're doing this professionally, you're helping others, people like me or people who are others who are on their path to be a professional thought leader. Let me ask you this. In terms of lifestyle, what is the pros? What is the cons of being a professional thought leader? Yeah, I think it's awesome from a lifestyle perspective. And especially it depends on how you set it up. So in my previous company, we did a road tour. My wife and I, after graduating college, we basically purchased an RV and we did events in all 40 states. Our company did, we did over 450 half day conferences. We also wow. placed a thousand keynote speakers. And wow. I love the impact of that business, but mm. on the negative side of it, it was doing the same talk over and over. And mm. so it wasn't as fulfilling intellectually. Mm. Now with something like the Mental Model Club or with writing, I'm constantly exploring new ideas. And so I love it from a lifestyle perspective because number one, I get to uh, learn something that I'm curious about and then apply it to my life. So that just, even if that was it, I'd be really happy. And then I get paid for it, which means I could do more of it and I could build a team of people who are also involved in that. And then part of, I can have an impact and I can also build a community of other people who want to learn that same thing. And also the fact that you learn so much by teaching someone else and explain to someone else that from a self growth perspective, if you value that in your career path, it is something where you get 
way more uh, growth than other areas of my experience. So the process, you get to learn more, you get to deepen your understanding, you get to also teach, share your learning and your style of learning with others. You get to constantly be immersed in new knowledge. So if this is something that you like, that's the pros of being a professional thought leader. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the other part is scalability that if mm -hmm. I write an article, the cost in terms of hosting the webpage and other things is the same, whether it's 10 people or a million or even 10 million people. And so mm -hmm. it's exciting that if you really take the time to perfect this craft, that with just a little bit of effort, you could reach millions and tens of millions of people, which is just a crazy amount of leverage. Awesome. So scalability is that. So what about the cons? Are there any cons of being a professional thought leader? All right. I'm going I'm to have to think about this one. I, I am a kid in the candy store and I'll just go back to one more pro because I, right. as I'm thinking about it, <laughs> there's a long list of pros. Great. I've had a lot of different points in my career where that hasn't been a fit. Mm -hmm. And part of it is that I'm someone who's curious and likes to, I like learning and being put in new environments. And I realized I was self-sabotaging myself as an entrepreneur mm -hmm. because as soon as I figured out something in the business and in which started to become all more about operations, mm -hmm. I became less interested for whatever mm -hmm. reason, just how I'm wired. I, I like that newness. And it's a career that can fulfill if you're a polymath and like learning across different areas. And I would say for someone who doesn't like constantly learning or going to lots different across different areas or teaching, or they find writing tedious, then it would be a, a nightmare career. Basically. <laughs> and a lot of people don't, of people yeah. don't enjoy reading and or writing. I, I, there's a reason why we're talking. Yes. Yes. So what are some of the cons if you don't mind going to it for me personally, or just in general? For you personally, from, from your perspective, right? Cons of being a professional thought leader. Maybe I can kickstart this. Maybe yeah. I don't want to put you on the spotlight too much. From our conversation and our work together, one of the things that could be considered as a con is that you constantly go through that creative struggle. You stare right, into right. the abyss. You stare into that blank screen, right? So you need to be comfortable with that discomfort. That's perhaps one of the cons, right? And then perhaps another uh, con of being a professional thought leadership, uh, uh, thought leader is you're alone a lot. So if you enjoy that, great. But if you don't, then perhaps not. So obviously there's different ways to get around it, but as a thought leader, that silent space is really important. So these are some yeah. of the things that I see. Are there things that just potentially- I feel like it's very individualistic because mm -hmm. the things that you mentioned are also one of the reasons I really like it. Right. In learning how to learn, there's this idea of desirable difficulty mm -hmm. that one of the things that, one of the ways we learn something more is it by it being difficult and our body and our brain struggling to remember it or to use a concept that actually helps it sink deeper. So I actually really like the hard parts of the process of with an idea of like, all right, how do I narrow down or how do I really say this correctly? It doesn't come across as a struggle where for me, what comes across as a struggle is more in just the operational parts. And that's my weakness that I have to and to have a team that helps on that. And that's what they love. Cool. So all pros, no con. It, it feels really weird to say, but uh, <laughs> for me at this point, there's not to say there's not challenges, but I feel really good. I feel good and it's yeah. worthwhile versus the suffering where you're just challenges and you don't see where it's going and you feel like it's yeah. going backwards. Yeah. So that I think that's a really good indicator right? If you speak about it in an authentic way, not in a posturing way, but in an authentic way, that means there's that soul market fit that you are actually on, on your path, on your Dharma to do the things that your soul wants to do. Is that correct? Yeah. I used to not believe in that. Cause I remember during the tour, I came to the conclusion that I had to really force myself to do things and be really disciplined and that, okay, I guess I'm not following through as much on some areas. So I guess I'm not disciplined is what I came to, or I felt like, okay, you, you can't, I'd read something like Warren Buffett says, he's like a kid in the candy store or he's dancing to work. I'm just like, is that really true or not? And so now knowing what I know, I could really see that there's certain types of businesses and ways of starting them or running the company 
where that strength, that, that thing that is normally a weakness could be a strength. So, cause in this area, I am very disciplined. Uh, yeah. Well. So let's, let me ask a tactical question and we'll go into the journey part. Okay. Yeah. I want people to see the ups and downs. This is not just all of a sudden you wake up one day, ta-da, I'm a thought leader, right? So I'll, I'll ask that question in a moment. How does COVID actually impact your business as a thought leader? Does it stay the same? Is it may make it even better? Does it make it worse? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I just, I think a few areas, I think we're just at a really unique time right now where people are really considering their life at the fundamental level. And we're doing this as companies and societies of what are the best ways to do things from a social equity perspective or even just working from remotely and, and things like that. And so it's a great time to be a thought leader because there's an openness there and really an openness to reconsidering, reinventing things rather than incrementally changing things. And that doesn't happen all the time. So I'd say that's number one. And then our business just ha has not been really impacted, I would say. Yeah. Uh, that's good to know. And then I guess I asked that question in a leading way because I have an idea. So that, that's why I asked that question. I think for people who are listening, who are considering like, how do I actually create a bulletproof, a, a recession proof, a, a my personalized economy? I think being a thought leader for me, that's one of the ways to do it. So that way, you are, you have an audience that actually want to hear from you that want your voice that want your energetic resonance. And thus you're creating a moat around the greater economic environment and all these other things. That's what I wanted to say. So let's zoom out for a bit. Let's look at your hero's journey a bit. You weren't always, by the way, you don't notice, but some of the people that I've spoken to, uh, when they speak about you, they speak with such reverence. They use terms like Titan. Michael is such a Titan in our industry. Wow. I've like, never heard that before. I have <laughs> never heard anyone <laughs> speak about anyone as a Titan. So I just wanted you to know that. Wow. Okay. I'm curious. So, so you weren't always this Titan of a thought leadership industry. So tell us a little bit about your journey. So then that way we have an idea of what have you attempted and what have you experimented? Yeah, my, how far should I go back? Let's do with uh, impact, Let's start with impact and the, the ups and downs of your, your entrepreneur journey. Yeah, so I started my first business when I was 16 years old and it was at the same time that I also became fascinated with learning because no one else in our entire district had started a business before. I co-founded the business with Kyle Newport and it really imprinted both of us. I feel like we, it's funny, we're both in the thought leadership world and entrepreneurial and that had a huge impact on me. And I feel lucky that we found each other and we could just have those conversations of how things worked and deconstructing that. Was it love at first sight? I think we met each other in seventh grade. So we were in the, in the same friend group. And then over time, we got to realize. Okay, so it was cultivated yeah, over time. Mm -hmm. And let's see. I remember reading the book, Thinking Grow Rich at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really had a big impact on me because it made me feel like I could accomplish something big in my life. And that even the idea of that thoughts can be real. And that I remember dancing around my bedroom. <laughs> it must have been like 1 or 2 a.m. I'd stay up late and just... You get that feeling inside of you, like, oh, wow, whatever is in my head, it's already happened. Mm. And I'm almost celebrating it because it just feels like it's already happened. Mm. And, you know, and I feel like that feeling in many ways planted the seeds for everything else that came afterwards and just mm. that belief. And I had a, a down part. This is now fast forwarding. I'm in love with learning. We have a web development business. Happened to be a really good timing to be a high school student selling web development services in 1998 because mm -hmm. people associate young people, even if you're not an expert, if you can just use a computer, they're like, oh, you're the young whiz kid that I've been waiting for to, to help. And they're willing to pay a lot of money. So for us, I think we were charging 125 at our peak or something like that per hour. Mm -hmm. and we outsourced it to people for $25 an hour. So oh, it was you arbitrage it. What's that? Arbitrage, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Your agency arbitraging web development services. Gotcha. Exactly. And so 
it's awesome to make a hundred dollars per hour for somebody an hour that somebody else works and they're happy as well and the client's happy and in 2000 2001 when i was in college the business kind of fell apart and we just had different interests as well uh cal and i went to different colleges and that was a really part because suddenly this part that i was recognized as a great entrepreneur and doing all these things suddenly the things i realized that i wasn't as smart as i thought i was and there was a large part of it was luck at some level and and it was just shameful as well to like people think you're doing well and you're really not and i remember i moved off campus at nyu about an hour away off campus at one point and it was just you know in a really dangerous area we should have known when we went to check it out that there was all these cockroach traps around that is infested. And so eventually we ended up moving out of there, but it was, we had a cockroach counter on the wall uh, and it was like 20 per day that we would see to try to complain to the landlord. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That so terrible. I probably went too far onto the negative side there and losing confidence and self-esteem and almost being too humble as well. I got into writing because I wanted to, I thought, I read this book that was asking about what legacy you wanted to leave. And I had never asked myself that question before. And mm. so at the time it was revelatory to think about how do you want people to remember you after you died? Did you say you read answer. it or you wrote it? I read that. I read, read it. it. Okay, gotcha. I think it was thinking how to think like Leonardo da Vinci, I think mm -hmm. was the book. It might've been something else. And at the time the idea was, I want to have the largest lasting positive difference on the world that I can. Mm. And I didn't know how, you know, I would do that. Then didn't know a lot about the world, but I felt like the biggest way I could at that time is teaching people about what I had learned. Cause even mm. though the, the entrepreneurial journey ultimately failed, I still had this imprint and was learning about and had a lot of skills and I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur forever. And my, a lot of my peers hadn't had that experience or revelation as well at that, 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 turned into me writing articles to my friends actually at first, because I would have trouble. I would be trying to make the case in a group conversation and I'm not as good in that way. And mm -hmm. after, I remember one night after we separated, I stayed up late and literally wrote an email about here's why you should become a student entrepreneur mm -hmm. that, that resonated with them. And then I didn't even have any plans to do anything more with it, but then I sent it to uh, entrepreneur magazine and it actually got published. There. It was a cold, it was a cold email and just say, Hey, I think you guys would, your audience will love it. Yeah. I think nice. they had a section called teen startups or something like college startups, something like that at that time. And then I started writing articles and just really loving it. And then I turned that into a book and that eventually became speaking. Then that became the Rotor. You mentioned a lot of things. So first of all, you started when you were young and you read Think and Grow Rich. So that actually gave you some mental models around how thought can be turned into reality that gave you that entrepreneur spirit that stoked that entrepreneur spirit, right? Yeah. You had a good timing, dot com boom. You started a business doing arbitraging and then you, and then you, uh, went down into your dark nap, the soul woman, let's say, then that actually lit the fire of you writing and then trying to persuade, enroll others such that they could be student uh, entrepreneurs as well. Yeah. And, and then you were ballsy enough to just say, Hey, I'm gonna, I think it's pretty good. Let me, why don't you publish my writing? Cause that's pretty awesome. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that thinking grow rich and those sorts of reading tons of books also just made me want to publish a book after that as well. Okay. So now you're on the path of being a professional thought leader, professional writer, any pivot that you had to go through it's good because you're not a professional contributor to different magazines and publications. And then you're also not, you know, churning out eBooks or physical books every year or every six months or every two months, et cetera. So what have you attempted now that you know that you want to be in the idea space, what pivots have you experimented? I think there's a few mistakes I made around this time or two mistakes that everything happens for a reason. And I wouldn't be the person I am today unless these things had happened. Mm -hmm. And, but in retrospect, if you're starting from scratch, it wouldn't, wasn't the best. So I wrote the book and I thought I was going to sell hundreds of thousands of copies just because the ideas were so awesome. Mm -hmm. And I also rushed the book a little bit. I just wanted to get it out faster. Mm -hmm. 
I did five revisions and hired an editor, but it needed more. And I was kind of cherry picking some of the, in retrospect, I wasn't trying to shoot down the ideas as much as trying to find research to support them more. Mm -hmm. And because it didn't sell that as much, although there's definitely people who liked the book, just didn't spread virally. I started to get invited to speak. And at the time, maybe I could make $2,000 per talk or uh, $2,500 per talk. And I thought, okay, maybe I could do speaking as a way to make income. And so I could do this full time. And I never really enjoyed speaking. It was one of, I did it for one, because I was nervous of it. I just wanted to just do it. And I definitely feel like I got a lot better. I'd say growing up, I'm very high on the introvert scale, very high on the shyness scale and being quiet. And so I like the idea of just forcing myself to get out of my shell. And I was truly terrified before these talks. The very first one I did that was paid was in Elko, Nevada. And it's just a small mining town and 85% or something of the students would go into mining. And so I was just like, what am I going to be able to say to the students to connect? And so I was just, it ruined like my two weeks beforehand, just deliberating upon it. And, and, and I think the le one lesson I take away from it looking back is... It's good to do things that to get out of your shell, to do things where you force yourself to improve. But there's also something around really finding the thing where it's really easy and fun for you and hard for others and doing that really well. And at the time, there wasn't online courses. And I didn't really know how to do marketing. So I, was, I couldn't make writing work at the time. But I speaking forced me away from the thing that I was really good at. That's an interesting thread that, that we can uh, rabbit hole that we can go on to. So one of the visuals that I have, if you think about Venn diagram, what I want or what you want, and then what do others want? And then somewhere in the middle is where the sweet spot is. So I yeah. love the way that you articulated was what's easy for me, but how hard for others, but also something that they find valuable as well. That's the implicit yeah. message underneath that. So tell us a little bit about how you actually navigate the inner grappling, navigate that space. Because I would assert a lot of people who are looking to reinvent themselves, who are looking to get into the thought leadership space, who is a little bit timid because this is new for them. How, what are some of the mental models that you can share with them so then it helps them navigate what's easy for me but hard for others at the same time so useful for others? Yeah. Let me think here. I think one thing is there's Steve Jobs has the quote that the dots don't in your life don't connect looking forward. They connect looking backwards. And so... A lot of times we take people, we're attracted to the past where there's the most certainty and prestige and short-term clarity. So when I went to business school, most of the people, not literally 95% or more majored in finance and investment banking. And it had, even though you had to work hundred hours per week, it was one of the most prestigious and highest paying short-term. And even the people who were undecided, that's where they went. And so I could see that sort of way of making decisions a lot. It's very easy to fall into that. And then there's this other path of when you find those things that you're really uniquely curious about that you enjoy doing, sometimes there's a perfect market fit for that where you can see, okay, if I do this, it's going to work out well, I'll get a job in this. But sometimes it's not clear what it's going to pay off. And I think one, it's really valuable to give yourself permission to follow those things. And you almost have to have faith that the dots will connect. And I really believe that the dots do connect. And if you let it compound over time and you keep getting better and better, more and more options grow for you. I think the hard thing about being a thought leader is that it's a winner take all, winner take most market. So there's incredible scale for the top people writing articles. But for most people, they're getting like three shares, which means friends and family are seeing it, but not much else for their content and their ideas. So what that means is you have to be willing to suck and not get results for a long time or get less than you like to keep going. And 
also another thing that happens in thought leadership is all of the way that information is distributed to us through social media is through algorithmic news feeds. So they're designed to highlight the things that are most engaging, that get the most engagement and bury the things that get the least engagement. So when you log into Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and you're seeing people's engagements, you're just seeing the very best you know, of all the you know, hundreds or thousands of posts they could have showed you. They're showing you the top 1% or you know, 5%. And so it's easy to judge yourself against those and then assume that, okay, they must be not good at this and just give up too soon. Yeah. You mentioned there's a, <laughs> there are a few different topics I can go into. <laughs> so one thing that I, I want to say that you said to me, I thought was super helpful is just think about the internet. You go into this mega store and you have infinite shelf space. And then the one that captures the most attention is the one that's the best. And then that, I think that's what you meant by winner take all. Is that what you mean? Can you say a little bit more about the winner take all or winner take most? Yeah. I think one of the things is that when things become digital, they become winner take most. So one bell, one way of looking at the distribution of results is as a bell curve. So height is an example of that where I'm six, five, how tall are you? Five, 10. 5'10". Okay. So you're about the average height and I'm higher on the bell curve. You're never going to find someone who's 10 feet tall, but in the world of wealth, you have someone like Jeff Bezos, I think is worth more than like the bottom hundred million Americans combined or something wealth-wise. So you have things that happen like that. And when something becomes digital, you know, number one, it could spread globally right away at zero cost. And that's part of, and then there's other effects that can happen, but so when you find yourself, a lot of people are in winner take most markets and they don't realize it. And so in a winner take most market, you have the extreme people on the high end and relatively few of them compared to most people who try to become the best at it or try to do something there and then don't get any results. In economics, there's this idea of overcrowding in these markets as well. There's these huge success stories, let's say in basketball or something, and everyone wants to be the next basketball player or the next musician. And they don't realize. And so there's huge competition and small rewards. And so in those markets, I feel like you want to go into those markets with a strategy to be one of the best. And if you're not willing to do that, then you should just really lower your expectations. That's interesting. Okay. So if I'm hearing a few different threats here is, well, one, follow your curiosity and also trust and have faith that it's all going to connect. And at the same time, pick a niche that you're willing to commit for long-term because it's going to take time and that you are willing to commit to be the best because in the, in the idea space, when it takes most. So if you're not willing to do that, then you have a few different choices, quit now or settle for being mediocre. And, yeah, and exactly. 10 years, essentially. Is that accurate? I want to make sure that I'm not putting words. I would just make all oh, that was accurate. I would just add one other thing is that I, I, I actually working on an article on this. So there's a lot of different studies around this and just the more passionate and it's obvious too. the more passionate and the more curious you are about something, then just the harder you're going to work. Mm. This is an example of more on the curiosity side, but it shows the extreme of it of you could have you could feel like your schedule is really busy and you don't have any time. And then let's say you're start watching a TV show and you need to go to bed early because there's not enough time. And then you're watching a TV show that has really good uh, cliffhangers. The guy who started watching uh, dark. I don't know if you've seen that recently, a foreign language film gets good after episode six or anybody else who's listening. <laughs> and I like, I'm suddenly it's 1am and I'm like, what have I done? Like suddenly I just <laughs> three hours here to, to watch this. And I didn't have the time. And I find that with learning. That's how I'm with learning. Like I don't, I'm just finding the time all over the places. Cause I was like, I'm like a kid in the candy store and I can't help myself, but do it. And it's going to be hard to have any sort of amount of discipline that can match someone where it's for them. It's like a kid in the candy store. And for you, it's like torture. It's just hard to compete. So let me ask you this, because this is an important topic because a lot of people that I know, whether they're entrepreneurs or aspiring authors or thought leaders, 
in the beginning part, I think era Ira Glass said it best. Hey, um, in the beginning part, you got into this because you have a good taste. Unfortunately, your capability hasn't actually, you know, met your taste. So the beginning part sucks because you yeah. can see that your work just isn't up to par, right? So there's a there's an aspect of that. Why did I mention all that? So two approaches to finding your unique blockbuster ideas. I think this is your terminology. How do you find your blockbuster idea? So one approach is just keep writing, keep digging and something would emerge from your effort, right? Or in let's say Tim Ferriss's case, he created a new category called lifestyle design. And all of a sudden he jumped the curve and he just started writing that. But while he's doing that, he's also having faith that people are interested in that. Does that make sense? So then are you more of a proponent of the first, just uh, keep writing the, the, the volume or it will allow you to that new blockbuster idea to emerge? Are you more of the, hey, let's meditate on this, keep being really strategic about it, come with something that's truly original that really a few people have talked about it. Yeah. Before I answer that, let me just go back one step to, I recently wrote an article about long-term thinking mm -hmm. and part of what I've done over the years is I went to find, actually, I'm not going to, okay, actually I will. This is quite <laughs> a side here, but a big turning point for me from a learning perspective was deciding who to learn from. Mm -hmm. And it's very, a lot of results that happen in the world are because of randomness, but they're assigned because of someone's expertise. Mm -hmm. So you picture there's a hundred people flipping a coin or what are the odds of flipping a coin a hundred times heads? Mm -hmm. If it's really low, but if you have, I, I don't remember what the odds are, but if you have 10,000 people flip the coin, you'd expect one or a few of them to actually have heads a hundred times. Mm -hmm. And that number could be way off, but you get the idea. Mm -hmm. And so in the world of starting a business, and people going for it, you're going to have a large percent of people who are successful primarily because of luck. And for me, in starting that first business, I think that was a large part of it. Uh, we have to be, you have things like persistence and like pushing forward. Those are the table stakes, but what really the luck was a big factor. And so when I had that lens that, okay, a lot of it is luck. How do I find the people who are successful because of skill, not because of luck, then I really started to narrow down who I looked for. I looked for people who were, you know, against the odds, successful multiple times in multiple industries and, or where they're starting from scratch. And by narrowing it down, I started to study people like Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger. Investors are really interesting because their track record is public. So you could see their records going back for decades and they constantly have to be making these decisions, investment decisions. And and so I found these group of people and you know, one of the patterns that I saw was just a, a long-term thinking. And when you make, when you think long-term, you're fundamentally willing to make bets that other people aren't. And one of the things is that one of the, many of the best bets to make, they don't even pay off for five years, 10 years. Amazon, I think has a seven year window of when they expect an idea to pay off. When most other companies, it's just a much smaller window. So they're not even going to go for certain of the best ideas. And it's harder to hear this message if you're earlier in your career, because counterintuitively, you should have more patience because you have a lot more time, but you want things a lot sooner. And so that was definitely my case that I didn't fully have this in some ways. But there's a, in terms of becoming a top performer, world-class at something is you have to have realize that part of the process is not being good for a while and be okay with that and get started. And just most people are not willing to even get started. And those who do just give up way too soon. Yeah. So this is a really important topic. Again, giving the time of reinvention, a unique window of reinvention this time where anything is possible. So one key for one key criterion that I hear is curiosity, right? Are you willing to commit to this for a little while? So that's on the internal side of things. Are there others criterion wise that you can share with them such that they can make that long-term commitment for five years, seven years, whatever years, in spite of all the circumstantial changes or the internal uh, changes? Well, 
the relational changes? I've come to really question goal setting. Mm. Uh, and in, while Napoleon Hill was really helpful at that stage of my life and has a lot of really positive parts. It's also interesting. I just read this. Literally, it was like a you know, 20,000 word article. Mm. There was somebody spent years just researching his life. And he was if this he wrote this book with his uh, one of his wife who took the rights, end up taking the rights. But he was basically cheating the law all the time, getting run out of town. Uh, none of the books he wrote on his own did well. And so it's just interesting. That's interesting on itself. And number two, I think the idea with goal setting is you're in a way predicting the future of yourself in the world. And you mm -hmm. think, okay, here's what I want in 10 years. And you're assuming that you're going to be the same person almost mm -hmm. in 10 years. And, but the reality is you're going to probably change very dramatically in those 10 years and you're going to have different values and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the version of you seven years from now might not even want that goal. It might feel obligated to pursue that goal because you've already put in so much time into it. And so I think, and then also it's just hard to predict what the world is going to be like. And so I've definitely switched to more of an emergent paradigm of trying to create, give myself the space to grow and to follow my curiosity. And so imagine your future self as a different person, as like a child for you. Mm -hmm. You want to, you want that your child version to uh, have the freedom to explore what they think is best in that moment and not feel like, okay, you're giving them the family business and they want to run it or don't want to run it, something like that. So that frame was very helpful for me in choosing this business with the mental model club, for example, because I very consciously structured it for my personality. Every month, Evan and I, Evan Pagan and I, uh, a role model, investor, a friend, co-founded the Mental Model Club. But every month we get to do a new mental model. And so we're constantly able to choose what we think is the highest value and curiosity at a, at a given point for us. Uh, so I would say that's one thing. And before I was always thinking, okay, I want to cement who I am and I'm just going to do this. I'm assuming I'm going to do this forever. And then another thing that helped was looking back at all of myself and my career. And there's some passions that were fleeting, but that there's other passions that have always been enduring and betting on those enduring passions. The things for me, I just love ever since I was 16. In high school, I was spending hundreds of dollars per month of my own money buying books. I would go to Barnes and Noble and get like a pile of 10 books and hang out there for hours at a time. And I found that works really well, that if you've been passionate about something for 20 years, like a kid in the candy store, it's likely that will continue versus if you happen to be passionate about something in the last month, you'll get value from it, but it's probably not going to be something you're passionate about in five years. Got it. So a few criteria I wanted to underline this, right? By the way, this is my style. <laughs> so one is, what are you curious about it right now? And at the same time, dig deep and really look at what are the enduring curiosities that you have. You've been just interested for whatever reason. Doesn't matter why. It's just I'm interested in microfinance. Doesn't matter why. I'm just interested in. It. Okay, great. Then take a mark there. And at the same time, I also hear, you didn't say this, but I, I hear is, how do I design my life such that I have maximum flexibility and options as I grow five years, seven years, 10 years, 20 years from now? It's just, am I projecting or did I actually hear that? Yeah, before? yeah. And it's not just building options to have options. It's just giving space for your future self, like a, as if you think about it, as your child to emerge. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Now, that's, that's super helpful. Okay, good. So let's move on to a different uh, topic. So you had mentioned that, all right. So you had mentioned that you partner with a mentor, right? A role model. How did you do that? Because a lot of people probably say, hey, I'd love to like build a business with my mentor slash role model, but it's a desire, but you actually made it happen. How did you cultivate that relationship such that he decided to get married with you? I would say it happened very organically mm -hmm. and that I met him at a conference. He sent me his course for free, which is very nice. And that made an impact. And then mm -hmm. when I was writing an article in the future, I interviewed him and mm -hmm. that went well. And then he was working on writing a book 
And then he reached out and asked if I do ghostwriting. And at the time we had an agency that helped with that. And then it just evolved from there and actually just transformed. Maybe we were talking once a, month, a week and then maybe two months in, he asked if we were looking for investors. And right before that, I'd been thought and thinking about how great it would be to partner with him. And one of the things I really admire about Evan or the ideas that I got from him is the yeah, allowing for emergence and collaboration mm -hmm. that he basically at the very beginning brought up that there's a lot of different ways we could collaborate. Mm -hmm. Some of them could be bet. Some of them, the project is not going to work. We're not going to like it. Other ones, there's the, it's going to really work. And so let's spend the time to look for that higher leverage. So it started off with the book project, but I like that we were having a weekly talk and then the opportunity emerged. And so this goes back to goal setting versus emergence that with relationships as well, when I tried to force them by in my previous company, we would get funding from foundations or try to get successful people at conferences. And so I felt in retrospect that I'll go to conferences, trying to find the most successful person there. And I was good at just building a relationship in many ways and getting them getting level of engagement, but it was also inauthentic and it was just create a weird way to go through reality and the relationships ultimately weren't as deep. And so part of the time I started to let go of the goals paradigm as much, not to say I don't have any goals. Uh, I started to do that with the relationships as more and look at the relationships that were already, there was already that connection there and then just invest in those and let that collaboration emerge where, and things where I felt like I was forcing it and I was doing it for whatever reason, or they weren't, there wasn't the energy there to just pull back from those relationships. Yeah. Thank you for that. I totally relate. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about the yin yang. Yang is very like intentionality. Here's my sovereignty. Let me inject my intention. At the same time, the yang, sorry, the yin is very much in surrender and flow, right? So there lies, it's not one or the other. It's yeah. there, there lies in a harmony point somewhere in the middle, but it's mm -hmm. also up to you to find that harmonious point, whatever that may be for you. So I love that. Uh, and I'm so glad that we got connected finally. Yeah, likewise. Okay. So if I'm hearing you right, let me use a dating analogy a bit. You didn't go into that first coffee day and say, let's get married. Right? Let's figure out some of the checkpoints. Let's figure out a way to get engaged and then get married. And it's very much fluid. You're open. You're intentional about some possible synergy and, and resonance. And then you're open to explore different ways and such that you're not so attached to a specific thing. Is that accurate? Right. And the other thing is that it evolved organically as a result of who he was and who I am. We, we, while we're both very curious, we love learning, we want to optimize all the different areas of our life, not just business. Mm -hmm. And that's what allowed it to happen. And if, if I was with someone where I, they didn't value that, then that wouldn't have happened. And I couldn't have, faking it would have been too much energy and wouldn't, wouldn't have worked. I also hear that you also demonstrated part of your capabilities as well. So you're not coming in as a sub coordinate, so to speak, right? A student or someone who's trying to get something, but you also, you come in as a, Hey, I got something, some superpower, some capabilities I can share with you writing and et cetera. And so you guys come together as peers rather than, uh, an on, uh, on equal footing. Correct. Yeah. I, I feel like there's, you know, he's definitely older, more experienced in a lot of areas. So it's almost. There's, it's a friendship. It's also like a, almost like a father relationship as well. But I feel like there's equality. There's equality in the respect, I would say. Gotcha. So shift gear a bit, because you had mentioned there's keys. It's really important to find the right people that you want to learn from. The right mentors, the right teachers, the right role models, etc. That's one of the key insights that you derive from the latest thing that you're writing. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Awesome. So what are some of the criteria that you could share that you have identified through your research, through your personal experience that you say, here are some of the things I've noticed as the right embodiment of a teacher. Could you say the question one time, uh, one more time, just in a slightly different way. So you said it's really important 
to find the right people to learn from. That's one yeah. of the insights that you got, right? Yeah. Okay. So share with us what are the criteria for quote unquote right teacher? Yeah. Okay. I feel like this is really fundamental because uh, it's had such a big impact. And I think the first thing is really getting to the that people who are successful because of skill versus luck. And when I got into that vein of people right away, just the knowledge was very different, the insights. And so that was higher. And then I would say you want to find someone who's, who's really good at teaching and coaching. And let's see, with teaching, there's a lot of people who are really good at something are doing it implicitly through skills. It's hard for them to explain it. It's hard to know exactly what they're doing. And there's other people who are very conscious about it and are good at teaching others. They've had feedback loops. They're good at explaining it to others. And so you definitely want to try to find the people who are good at explaining. And then in coaching, I think one thing that really Evan's really good at is he's really good at, he almost didn't give me any advice for six months. <laughs> I didn't even want the advice, and he, but he was really listening, observing how I was acting. And then when he gave advice, it was very much designed to be at the fundamental level. Mm. And so it'd have the biggest impact rather than giving lots of advice on the, the surface level. Mm. And in order to do that, he had to get to know me. And one of the big things that shows how holistically he thinks, his wife, Annie, is amazing. And she's a marriage coach. And she emailed me one day and saying, hey, part of Eben investing in companies is you get me. Mm. And I hadn't mentioned anything about my marriage at that point. And so at first I, and I felt uncomfortable accepting that at first. And, but part of the idea is that any of the challenges you have personally will impact you professionally and vice versa. And so if you really, the deeper you go, the more it's just going to impact your business, your marriage, your as a parent. So those are harder to find, obviously, somebody's been willing to do that, but that was really transformative. And then there's the obviously having rapport with them. You know, it's hard to force something where there's not a connection. Mm -hmm. The good news now is that so much of things are online now. So even if you don't have a personal relationship with someone, you can really still get a lot of value from what they've written online. Mm. You can get a taste of their energetic transmission in addition to their content. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you mentioned the energetic transmission. I think that's really important as well in that it's really hard to copy someone whose values you do disagree with. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that was hard for me, why I didn't learn marketing or sales for a long time is because the ones I was exposed to of people doing marketing, mm -hmm. I just didn't agree with the values of it. So learning from Eben and seeing the marketing at a deeper, more humanistic level was mm -hmm. what finally allowed me to be able to learn it. Mm -hmm. And if somebody has a different style, then you're just not going to, you're going to feel weird. You're not going to be able to copy it. And if you do, it's going to be authentic to who you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I resonate with that. Beautiful. Anything else around choosing the right teacher for you? No, I guess I would think one thing I did in college, I was, I think a good decision was having just asking a lot of people out to lunch at the mm -hmm. time and setting up those informational interviews. And at the end of every informational interview, I would just really thank them and share the impact it had uh, and send them a thank you letter. I would ask if there was anybody else that they knew. And then I, uh, and so I get introductions to more meetings. And then if they recommended I do something, I said, okay, once I read this book that you recommended, would it be okay if I circle back and just let you know how I applied it in a few months? So I kept the relationship open and expanded the network and deepened that relationship. And it's dating as well, that there's some relationships that just go deeper. And uh, Eben is one of those relationships. And previously in college, I shadowed Steve Mariotti. Mm -hmm. He founded the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, which is an amazing nonprofit that helps low-income high school students in inner cities start businesses. Mm -hmm. And still very close friends. And at the time, like he would just really transform my life. So I would work out of the office. He let me use the office space on the weekends. So I'd work out of the office. He invited me on business trips, got to just co-speak at conferences with him. He made introductions. He let me read his mail. 
and just understand the business world from that perspective. You know, he's, he's raising funding from billionaires, the largest foundation. So just seeing how communication happened mm. was really helpful. And even just one or two of those type of relationships where it's just an open, a deep relationship like that is really can make your life or career. And it, without those two relationships, I would just be a very different person. Thank you for sharing that, by the way, I totally appreciate the tactical advice that you share. So I'll say this. So there's tons and tons of people that I know, especially given social media and the years of experience that I have and so on and so forth. So there's tons of relationships, quote unquote. So the intention is there. I love to cultivate relationships with people, especially one that I feel resonant with, but I just don't have a good system such that I circle back constantly. So when I think about them, I make it habit of like texting them as quickly as possible. Hey, just thought about you, hope you're well, etc. So this is one discipline that I'm doing for you. Are there disciplines that you implement such that you can ensure that people who are important in your life don't just fall out of priority list because you have some other urgent things that's happening in your life? It's a good question. I've actually really thought very deeply on this. I used to write for Forbes and I would write about this topic and interview a lot of people and actually go deep on the social network science related to it. And my thinking has actually changed a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, number one, I go to this idea of the 80-20 rule that applies a lot across a lot of areas. And so in relationships, 20% of the relationships might give you 80% of the feeling of connection or the learning or, or the growth, things like that, or introductions. And so it's good to have a phase where you're going really broad, but I mm. think it's also really valuable to really invest in the high, and it might just be five relationships mm. and invest in those. So when I was younger, I did a really good job of going very broad, constantly going to conferences and things like that. And, but it also came to a point where it felt like overwhelming to keep in touch with people and I'll just keep, Hey, we haven't talked in a year. Let's just talk. And I've moved away from that some mm -hmm. and really focused on some of the top five to 10 people. And we're talking multiple times a day or a week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that feels really good. It doesn't feel like, Oh, I have to catch up, but that feels like, it doesn't feel like a chore, like a to do. Exactly. It never feels like it. And it's so connected to so I guess one thing is I found people, some of the people I resonate with the most, mm -hmm. they're hardcore learners. So they're constantly growing mm -hmm. and most relationships, if somebody's not a learner in the beginning, there's going to be a lot of learning, but over time, there's going to be less and less learning. And you're going to know what they're going to think or say. Mm -hmm. And so if you're talking to someone who's a learner, then, you know, you don't talk for a month and suddenly they're like, uh, they've cited a whole discipline or learned a lot. Then number two is I have a friend, Emerson Sparts, who literally, he's been a very successful entrepreneur. He really understands ideas and how they spread online. It has his sites have generated billions of, of views Wow! and maybe even tens of billions. And so he exited his last company, maybe two or three years ago, and he's just been traveling full time learning and literally wakes up at 5.00 AM and is just hardcore learning until evening. And so if I don't talk to him for a month, literally one month, he's literally going through trying to get to the, the equivalent of a, a medical school degree over a period of, a, this was a few months, but cause he's just focusing on full time and using all his learning hacks or another month he's gone into an esoteric field of science as an example. So polymath learner, somebody, and then I'm naturally a giver, somebody else who's a giver as well. So you give an idea and you get more back. And I feel like those relationships are really exciting where it's just, you're almost like out competing each other to share more, give more and just building off of each other and other relationships, the energy isn't there as much, or it's just neutral where you feel okay after talking to them or you feel energy drained. But in, in these relationships, you feel like, man, I'm alive. Uh, you feel mm -hmm. alive basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so some, on a tactical level with those relationships, if you feel like somebody might be like that and you want to explore that more, the big thing is for me, has been moving it from formal, like we have to schedule a call to informal 
So I'll give people permission if they're on their commute or just driving somewhere. Hey, just give me a call and I might do the same for you if, if that's something you're interested in. And then I use an app called Voxer. And mm-hmm. the beauty of Voxer is you could send asynchronous audio messages and then listen them at the two to three X speed. So somebody could really ramble or just really express themselves for a while. And then they don't have to feel guilty that they're rambling. And then the person listening can really listen to it quickly and respond. And so I have a few of those I do each day. I'm not using discipline to be like, okay, I have to respond to this person today or I haven't kept up with my quota. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Shift gear a little bit. Let's get a little bit more tactical. Okay. Thank you yeah. for, for, for sharing that. So if you're on Michael's boxer list, you know that you've earned your right to be in the <laughs> <inner> circle. Okay. <laughs> okay. So people who are interested in becoming thought leaders, what is a common advice that they get and, but is completely wrong? Hmm. Keeps on uh, changing for me. So it's hard to, I, okay. I have it. I think that you shouldn't spend time more than an hour or two writing an article that you should be keeping to a content calendar and you just aim to write once per week and just stay top of mind. I feel like that's a pretty bad strategy overall or a good one if you're trying to be invisible and good uh, one. If you're trying to be what invisible, got it. Okay. And (laughs) (laughs) so for a quantity perspective, I feel, I feel like, so we're in a blockbuster, it's a winner take most market. There's some articles that get tens of millions of views or, and for you of all the articles you write, let's say you write a hundred articles in your life. It's likely that there's not just everyone's getting equal amount of attention. There's going to be probably one or a handful of ones that get most of the attention. And so the internet in a way, we thought it was a decentralizer of attention that it leads to this long tail that there's a million different niches and ideas and there's no more blockbusters, but it's actually the reverse has been true that the internet is one of the greatest centralizers of attention ever and centralizers in general. So the biggest movies have been in the past few years and basic music videos. And there's a great book called Blockbusters, which really shares the data behind this. And I believe in having a strategy that will help you write one of those Blockbuster articles, not only for the shares it will get and the views, but even more importantly for the depth where it can really shift someone's thinking. They used to look at something one way, going into your article, after leaving the article, they think differently. And so you could have an impact that way. And I get, feels really fulfilling to get messages like those every day saying, really had a big impact. I just want to let you know that it had a big impact on me. Got and it. So quality so, and depth over quantity, in other words. Now the tricky part is quantity is a way to test out lots of ideas mm-hmm. and see which one's the blockbuster. Mm-hmm. So I think quantity can be good from a test if you're using it for testing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but if you're using it just as a content calendar and not as much about testing, but just production. Yeah. And I don't feel like it's the best strategy. Got it. All right. Let's keep it rapid fire. So that way we can get some of these fundamental things there. Uh, I lo- yeah. I, by the way, just so that you know, I love to do part two, part three with you so we can parse out some of these, but for the moment, rapid fire. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. So what are some of the fundamental skills that someone needs to develop thought leadership skills? Because in my mind, there's a billion things that you could do and then try to strategize for WordPress, this and that. But what are the fundamental skills that if you just do this, that you will be on your way to be a thought leader? I would say one is value hook. Mm -hmm. So the way people discover content online is through algorithmic news feeds. And so value hook in that context would be the title, the image, and the subtitle that people are going to see. That's where a lot of the competition is. And a lot of people aren't even putting any time into becoming good at identifying the title and the image. Then number two, I'd say is research that the something like 90% of all living scientists, all scientists, the living scientists today count for 90% of the scientists that have ever lived. And that the, the amount of academic research papers that have been published is doubling every seven years. So being able to wade through that and find the needle in the haystack 
is a huge skill. And then I'd say naming things that the ability to, as you're doing that research, to find these areas of white space where there should be an idea, but there isn't, or conventional wisdom says this, but it's actually this other thing. And then having a name for that is once names really help people think better and differently or communicate with each other. And it's another area where people, most thought leaders don't even think about that as a category of skills to learn. Beautiful. Thank you. <clears throat> what about inner struggles? How do you, what's, what's a rapid fire way? So I'm staring at the screen. I'm intimidated as hell. How do I overcome that inner struggle? I would say to write for yourself and to just not censor yourself and do your first drafts that way. And just to get it out of your head. Beautiful. Thank you. Let's see. What are some of the questions that you've seen people struggle with, but I didn't ask you about? Well, one thing I've noticed more, a lot of times when people buy a course, they're trying to buy a, they want to get a result. And they think that the, learning the skill in the course is what's going to get them the result. And for a lot of times, it's actually a deeper transformation that needs to happen, where it's not just the intellectual skill. For writing, there's a huge amount of stuff around imposter syndrome, going down rabbit holes. Is this going to pay off? Uh, fear of judgment, fear of wasting your time. I have a list of about 30 different of these emotions. And when I observe people stopping, there's two things that cause people to fail fundamentally in all areas. One is you stop trying. And then two is you stop improving. So you're just doing the same thing over. And so I think the emotions are often what cause people to stop trying or stop improving. Are there ways that you have tactically to help people manage their emotions? Something that you do or something that you teach your students to do? I'd say one is looking at the emotions as part of the curriculum. Most of the time we just think about intellectual parts as part of it and realize that emotions often accompany different parts of the learning process. There's a good book, I think it's called like Moods and Learning How to Learn. But the main idea from that is that if you're just learning something, you're more likely to get overwhelmed, let's say. And so that's an emotion that comes up because there's so much stuff and which should you do first and it's hard to distance it. But maybe another part, you've made some progress, but you're hitting a plateau. And so there's emotions that come up around the plateau. And uh, so one, I think is just normalizing that. A lot of times when people have the emotion, they assume it seems like I'm doing worse than everyone else. So there must be something wrong with me. I'm going to give up basically versus being like, okay, this is about the time I should be feeling overwhelmed. This means I'm about as I'm forcing myself to learn a new thing and I'm going to come up with a better schema that's going to really help me. So it's almost a positive thing that you're feeling these emotions because that shows that it's part of the learning pro you're learning in the process. I love that. When the visual that comes to mind is the flow chart where yeah. There's a middle of where flow happens. If you're not stimulated enough, then you're bored. But if you stimulate it too much, you're overwhelmed, you're anxious. So the idea, right. I love what you share is being internally cognizant about what's happening within. If you are too bored, chances are you need to step it up a little bit. If you are totally overwhelmed, that's okay. Step it down, take a break, then you come back. So you can continue that flow, ride that wave. So I love that. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah. And then there's patience. I think one basic thing that we can all do better is come up with a, whatever we're trying to do, come up with a better model of it. So if you start off thinking that you're going to become really good, really fast, and that doesn't happen, then you feel really bad and you might. And the model I have of how it works is that it takes a lot of work, but with deliberate practice, the odds are very much in my favor because most people just aren't willing to put it in as one example, mm, uh, love that, that. That's how really can fundamentally change how you react to the events that happen. Mm. And so I also have a better understanding of luck and probability and randomness. So before something bad happened, I assumed, okay, I must've made a bad decision or something's wrong with me, but sometimes you can actually make the right decision and a bad event happens, or it could just be bad luck. And one thing I didn't understand is that the road to success is paved with failure. So you're failing and then something works and then that like pays for all of the other failures. 
and way more than the cost of them. But it's counterintuitive because you feel like if things aren't working a lot, he was like, okay, something must not be working. I'm doing this wrong. Yeah. It's all part of the journey, right? A roller coaster without any downs, it's not possible. You can just have the ups, the, the drops. You got to come down, go up, come down, go up. And that's part of the, the whole thing. That's what makes for me, the learning journey, the entrepreneur journey, the journey of being human exciting. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. Michael, I want to be super respectful of your time. I want to take a moment to acknowledge you for sharing just who you are, your stories, and to share your tactical advice and to really share for me, what's possible to be a professional thought leader such that you can have your personal economy, such that you're bulletproofing yourself, regardless of what's happening, COVID, the economic situation, presidential election, doesn't matter you are creating your economy, showing me what's possible. And the one last thing too, is the simple phrase that you share with me, your curiosity is an asset that fundamentally shifted the way I look at curiosity. So I want to thank you for just being you and share your, you know, gifts with the world. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. GK. You're awesome. Your presence, the way you ask questions that creating that space is transformative unto itself. And you're one of the best people I've seen at that.